0: It's autumn 1942, and a 56-year-old man has just escaped two years of Nazi incarceration and is now heading across the mountains to France. In his satchel, he carries a top-secret dossier detailing the dire state of Germany's economy, and in his head, he carries the evidence of her complicity in one of the worst crimes in human history. But he's also just hoodwinked one of the most powerful leaders in Hitler's Reich, and so there is a staggering price on his head. But he must not be caught. For more than the news he carries, it is in his very person that shell-shocked Europeans will one day find a bridge from which to escape the inevitability of a third world war. The unlikely and unsung hero who saved Europe is Robert Schumann, and this is his story. my hometown of Cockermouth, in North West England. Like most towns in the autumn of 1914, men were leaving for the front. Over a hundred young men marched on this main street and left for the continent in order to defeat German military imperialism. Not one of them would return. I think it's hard to overestimate the disjuncture caused by World War One. One artist and writer, Percy Wyndham Lewis, said the war was like a solid black mass that cut off all that came before it. When he wrote about it, he said, we are the first men of a future which has not materialized. Let's think about that for a moment. The guiding myth of modernity, the great promise of that noble secular humanist tradition was unilinear progression, and endlessly perfecting society, education, scientific technique, leading to prosperity and to peace. But that had died, or at least suffered a near fatal blow in the trenches of World War I, and Wyndham Lewis knew it. As Wyndham Lewis perceived, these first men of the future, these maimed and disillusioned Europeans for whom the future had not materialized, were the first post-moderns. For them, the idols of the Enlightenment have begun to crack and fragment, to tumble and fall. One of the ways to understand the radicalism of the 20s and 30s is to see that those shell-shocked and- Maimed frightened Europeans were desperately trying to hold together central myths of modern civilization. Wyndham Lewis, like the majority of the mainstream British media, succumbed to the Carlylean myth of the great man as Hitler and Mussolini arose and strode the world stage. I just got a copy of Mussolini's autobiography and you can see the glowing reviews from the London Evening Standard and the Daily Mail. A masterly portrait, says the Evening Standard. A remarkable document, says the Daily Mail. Wyndham Lewis, like those men of the 1930s, would all rue the day they gambled on the strong man of history. It was something that they would all bitterly regret as the 30s grew darker. So really, these men of 1914 were marching into a new epoch with little or no awareness. When Vera Britton wrote a few years later in Testament of Youth, she said, when the bells finally rang out, nobody shouted, we've won the war. People just looked at each other and said, the war is over. Even on the 11th day of the 11th month, on that very last day of the war before noon, nearly 11,000 men were killed and wounded. I think the tragedy can be summed up in the life of Henry Gunther name suggest Germanic immigrant origins. He was a US army sergeant and he was the last man to die. On the 11th day of the 11th month, at the 11th hour, 10.59, he charged a German machine gun position at Chaumont. The Germans shouted for him to go back, but he wouldn't. We stretch it to say that Gunther may have been shot by, at least symbolically, a distant cousin. Maybe he shared the same name as the machine gunner. Maybe they shared the same great grandfather. That's the tragedy of European war. Sergeant Gunther had been killed at Chamont. And just across the enemy lines to the east, Robert Schumann had been working at Metz Hospital and at Boulay as a German administrator during the war. Like many people who were ethnically French, he was on the wrong side of the line when war came. And here again is the tragedy. European wars are inevitably more like civil wars. Schumann's cousins fought in opposing trenches. World War I was particularly tense for the French-speaking citizens of Metz, or people ethnically French, like Schumann. At one point, when the guns could be heard from Verdun, many miles away, the French language was actually banned. Schumann continued vital work with his law firm to assist refugees and marginalize French-speaking citizens. By the summer of 1918, he understood two things. Firstly it was that the Germans could not win that war and secondly he understood that they had perpetrated war crimes. For example the summary execution of prisoners of war by Prussian troops in the Ardennes. This made Schumann shed his frontiersman's indifference toward a nation which he loved but that had been so clearly corrupted by the dark forces of nationalistic greed and a demoniacal hubris. He understood that after the war, the border men should have something to say in the halls of power, something to add, as Metz and the Alsace-Lorraine region was annexed to France once more. Edmund Burke said, evil triumphs because good men do nothing. The men of Alsace and Lorraine knew they should do something. But exactly what? Of course, after the armistice, Schumann became a French citizen overnight as the border moved 70 miles to the east. And of course then also came French reprisals against German citizens. 120,000 of them had to actually leave Metz. And then, of course, in came the flood of French expats hoping for redress, hoping to scrape back 50 years of German culture. Far away from the laissez faire nationalism of Paris, the border people of Alsace and Lorraine were left to find a way to live together with former enemies. As could be expected, many innocent people were caught in the crossfire of a new pernicious culture war. Moderating voices and administrators were definitely needed. So Schumann, after the war, joined the URL, the Union Republic of Lorraine. It was a Christian Democrat party and it united French and German citizens with the hopes of finding a common uh, political settlement together. Now, it was something his church had been doing all along. Remember, he went to a... St. Martin's was a bilingual church. They had worshipped together during the German occupation and now they would do the same under French rule. It was now time for the URL at the rough end of regional politics to catch up, and in 1919, 22 other deputies were sent to Paris. And Schumann was under no illusions about that. Writing to a close friend, Henry Esbach, he said, politics remains for me a great lady of dubious reputation who often endangers her friends. Henry was the one who had encouraged Schumann not to enter a monastery but rather become a saint in a suit. They had met while studying law at Strasbourg. Like Schumann, a medical exemption had led Henry toward an administrative occupation during the war. Henry had been a notary in Colmar, but was sent to the Russian front. And after the war, taking his own advice to become un saint en Henry also dedicated himself to public service he eventually became president of the Alsace-Lorraine Administrative Court. And along with his friend Robert Schumann, took a keen part in the commission to harmonise the French civil and commercial codes within the formerly German Alsace-Lorraine region. These became known as the Lex Schumann. In 1919, Schumann and 22 deputies of the border region were called to move to the capital to take their seats in the National Assembly. It was a historic moment for France. Many had waited 50 years to see this, but for Schumann, the move to Paris was undertaken with unease. He knew he could never be a a big player within the metropolitan urban elite. He had no friends in Paris, and he knew that the peculiarities of the Lorrainers, these border people, would be almost as obnoxious to Parisians as the Germans had been. Like most politicians, he was teased by the press and surely must have been an unusual specimen in the corridors of power. His Catholic piety was forefront, his baldness depicted as a tonsure in the cartoons which labelled him as the man in the invisible cassock. A year later, in 1920, he was nominated to the Consultative Council of Alsace-Lorraine in Strasbourg, and was thus in charge of general issues linked to the administration, legislation, and security. It was in that year that Mussolini founded the Fascist Party in Italy, and Stalin and Hitler, products of World War I, began looking to the future themselves. It was at this time he became something of a champion of justice when he patiently uncovered corruption in the Alsace and Lorraine steel and railway industries. The quiet lawyer didn't mind stepping into the bear pit, to face down France's biggest single private employee, the all-powerful de Wendel family. He was fast becoming a people's champion. For those with eyes to see, there was a powerful focus to this young man, a tenacious thirst for justice and integrity. His rise seemed steady and seamless, and in 1929 he became a member and then secretary of the French Finance Commission. But as the 20s rolled into the 30s, the Third French Republic, what one writer called the reductio ad absurdum of democracy, was in very deep trouble. French politics was broken. For over 70 years, a period known as La Decadence, there had been 103 cabinets with an average length of only eight months apiece. Betaine called it A moral failing, British Cabinet Secretary Maurice Hankey agreed and wrote with dismay of Britain's largest ally being half-rotted with discontent and communism. After returning from Paris, an alarmed Kenneth Clark told Churchill, you know the French won't fight. And so, as German military aggression once more threatened world peace, Schumann's specialist borderman's knowledge of Germany was increasingly in demand. It was the time of the great sifting of Robert Schumann. The great trial of his early life was the death of a father. The trial of his university days was the inexplicable and tragic loss of his mother. The great formative experience in politics was mediating during the ethnic strife in Metz between the wars. And now, as 1938, turn to 1939, would all that he had suffered as a young man, standing in good stead, when so many people crumbled during the war, would he buckle under the pressure of fascist and Nazi persecution? Would 1939 confirm, strengthen and reveal his virtue, or would he, like so many others, capitulate? The great sifting of Robert Schumann will be the subject of our next episode. On Saving Europe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please show your appreciation with a comment and perhaps even subscribing to the channel. If you have questions, drop them below. And if you want to go deeper into the subject, then please check out the Saving Europe book and the other videos on the channel especially the book distillery podcast where me and my blue-collar scholar friends go deeper with top academic guests from around the world so until next time thanks for watching